Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, while studying and, and meditating over this text in preparation for the sermon, you know, there was something there was something here that really stood out about the character, about the the behavior of these apostles, about Peter and John. And this is something that if we are familiar with, with the apostles, with the disciples of Christ, well then this is something that is actually pretty obvious. But in this passage, considering the setting, considering all of the things that have just taken place in the, in, in the time previous to our passage, what we see out of these apostles is very striking indeed. These apostles were convinced in their very souls, with every fiber of their being, that the message that they preached was the truth. Peter and John are going to the temple today here in this text, and these are men who have had only three years of preparation for this work, about three years of training for for preaching and teaching. Most pastors have about eight or ten years of training for this. These men have had three years of prep. Their master, their teacher, Jesus, had been executed by the leaders of Israel just, you know, two months before, give or take. And they're going up to the people that are responsible for this, And they're going to teach them. They're going to teach these people why it was wrong for them to do this. They're going to tell them, like we see in verses 14 and 15, you all have killed the holy and the righteous one. You have killed the author of life. And what would anyone expect to be the result of this? What would the reaction be to this kind of accusation? Probably complete rejection of that of that message right and you might expect too that peter and john would be mobbed maybe arrested maybe even killed why would anything other than that be expected and if you knew this if 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 you knew that you were about to be opposed in such a way that you were going to place yourself in such danger that your life would perhaps even be threatened, well, you probably wouldn't go ahead with, with what you were about to do. But Peter and John know the truth. They believe with, with absolute conviction concerning the power of, and and identity of Jesus Christ they must they believe they believe and they've begun their work now in Jerusalem knowing that that just as God the Father had sent Christ so Christ had called them and sent them and now they go forward they go forward into danger they go with boldness miraculous boldness Jesus had told them that they would receive the power to do this, 
the power to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and then out from there. They have received the Holy Spirit and now they are equipped. Now they are fully convinced that their labor is right and true. They know that God himself goes with them. And these developments that we see in the book of Acts, the the birth, the beginning of the new covenant church, we see the fellowship of the believers, the boldness of the preaching and the teaching. This is all very clearly the supernatural and miraculous work of God. What is he going to do next? And here God is propelling his plan forward. His plan for the restoration of his creation. His plan for the glory of his name. And he's starting his work here in Jerusalem with his people, with Israel. The people who had betrayed his anointed one. His Messiah, the Christ of God. And what a response from the people. And so today, this is what we see. We see the gospel of Christ is proclaimed to Israel. And we'll see three aspects of this. We'll see first, the sign of the power of Christ. And then we'll see the command to turn to Christ. And then finally, the refreshment of life with Christ. And so first, the sign of the power of Christ So what's the, what's the trajectory of, of this narrative? What's happened so far? Well, we see, beginning of the book of Acts, that the church was made up of about 120 believers, and they're all in Jerusalem, and they're obediently waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. This is, this is what Jesus Christ had instructed them to do right before he ascended into heaven. He said, wait for uh, the, the promise that the Father has given. The Holy Spirit comes, and in a single day, about 3,000 are added to the church, and these are people who have traveled from all over the place to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And the Lord has kept adding to that number, and they've continued worshiping together and, and beginning to put into practice church life. Church life, preaching and teaching, fellowship and charity. And during this time, they they continue going to the temple during these set prayer times. They haven't broken with all the Jewish traditions, but now they have a Christ-centered understanding of them. And, And so this is what they do today. They go up to pray to the temple and they encounter a beggar. And as we read in our text, this man has been carried there to that gate, the gate beautiful. He's carried there by his friends every day. And if we think about this, this was actually a pretty clever thing to do. He's right at one of the gates leading into the temple grounds. And so he knows who's going to be passing by. These are going to be people who are on their way to worship God. These are people who are bringing offerings. They're bringing money. And it's quite probable that every day he's going to encounter somebody who is compassionate 
and somebody who is carrying something that they could spare. And this man is disabled. The heading of our text here, he's called a lame beggar. He can't walk. And we see in in chapter 4 that this man was over 40 years old, and most likely he's been disabled from birth. And everybody knows this man. Everybody's familiar with him. He doesn't, he doesn't just pop up onto the scene randomly. He's very familiar. People know him. He's there every single day. And as Peter and John head into the temple, he asks them for money. He asks for alms. And so Peter and John give him their attention. And they say, hey, look at us. Look over here. Look at us. And so he thinks he's going to he's going to get something. He's going to get an act of charity. He's going to get some money from them. But Peter says no. He says no. Verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 40 years old, he's never walked in his life, and now today, some guy is telling him that he should just stand up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. We should be aware that everybody knows this name, Jesus of Nazareth. If you remember in the, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, the two disciples who are on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, this, these are two disciples that Jesus was walking along with. He asked them what they're, what they're talking about, what they're discussing, and they're incredulous. They go, what, what do you mean, what are we talking about? Haven't you heard? You're, you're, you're on your way from Jerusalem. You've been in Jerusalem, and you haven't heard about Jesus Christ, the things that he did, how, how he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, how he was crucified. And now his disciples are saying that he has risen from the dead. How have you not heard of this? If you were in Jerusalem and you hadn't heard the name Jesus of Nazareth, then you have been living under a rock This man knows the name. And we see that he dares to believe what Peter and John are saying to him. He reaches out his hand to accept help from Peter. And then we see in verse 7 and 8, he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet And ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. No kidding, he was walking and leaping and praising God. You know, sometimes it's when we... when we're so familiar with the Gospels, when we're so familiar with the work of or what we read in in the book of Acts, the things that were performed by the apostles, 
It's really easy for us to just read right past these things. Yep, there's a miracle that happened. Without really understanding how, how jarring this is, how amazing this would be for, for somebody who was healed in this way. And for me, for most of us, it's, you know, we've, we've walked for our, our entire lives and we don't stop to imagine what it must be like to go from never, ever having walked, ever in our lives, to suddenly being able to, to walking for the first time. Think about being a person with, with that sort of disability, especially at that time. You know, today we have a lot of ways that, that these difficulties are eased. Today we have, we have vans that have, you know, lifts that can, that can get you in, and we have vehicles that have hand controls, so even if you're paralyzed, you can get around quite easily. You can still drive a car. We have churches like this building here that, that are built with no stairs. There are laws about having barrier-free access. But back then, there were no special sidewalks for you. No wheelchairs, no elevators. You were completely dependent on others. You, you simply, there were things in your life, there were things that you simply couldn't do. You couldn't do. And in many ways, that's the same as today. But now somebody has come up to you, this stranger, and, and this person is telling you that today, all of that ends. You don't have all of these obstacles anymore. Everything that your loved ones, your friends, everybody around you has been able to do, you can do those things now today for the first time. This man believed that this could be true. He had faith. And this was granted to him. He listened to the authority of Jesus Christ and he stood up. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up, walk. And of course, everybody starts milling around because they see this guy walking. They all know him. He's been begging here every single day forever. This can't be a hoax. They see that Peter and John have something to do with this. And Peter takes this opportunity to be a witness to the people of Israel. He says, we didn't do this. Why are you acting like we did this? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, remember they're talking to Israelites here, he did this. He glorified his son Jesus Christ, the one that you killed, but he lives. We're testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ lives Listen to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know, he was made strong. It's in Jesus' name. And it's, and it's through the faith that comes through him that has given this man complete healing, as you all can see. He's calling them to be witnesses of this now. You guys are eyewitnesses of the healing of this man. You're eyewitnesses of the power of Christ. God did this. This is the power of God. This is the power of Jesus Christ. You can't deny it. And Peter says that 
This is what the prophets have been prophesying about since the very beginning. From Samuel all the way through, this is what was spoken about. This is what we read in Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Your God will come with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then... Will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then will the lame leap like a deer. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This is proof that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. The healing power proves that Jesus is God's anointed servant who gives salvation. This is, this is how Jesus responded to the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist apparently had other ideas about, about what the Messiah would look like. And John was in prison and he sent some disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the one who was to come or should we wait for someone else? And what was Jesus' answer to that? He said, go tell John. Go tell John what you see and hear. And he gives all these examples. The deaf hear. The blind can see. The lame walk. The dead are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. That means that when these things are happening, that is proof that the Messiah has come. They're testimonies to his power. <laughs> This is something that Israel is supposed to know. They see this work of Christ and they should know that we have entered into the last days, the last age. This is the time when God's blessings are poured out on his people and they are beginning to experience the restoration that God has been promising God gives healing and restoration and renewal. And the question is, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does it mean that we are healed, we are restored, we are renewed? Well, it means that Jesus Christ is doing something with you. He's working powerfully and miraculously in your lives. This physical healing that we're seeing in our text here, what we saw through the whole earthly ministry of Christ, this is meant to be a sign and a testimony of the power of Christ. It's a sign of the fuller restoration that is coming, that's underway. And what we have to seriously understand and accept and believe is that the Spirit of Christ has been given to us in order to heal us and restore us spiritually. Spiritual restoration. Peter says to this man whose legs are absolutely useless, walk, stand up, get up and walk. He's never walked before in his life. What's the normal practical response? What, what would anybody say in response to this? 
If you have never walked in your life and somebody goes, hey, buddy, get up and walk. Well, you go, I can't. I cannot walk. Don't you see me sitting here asking for money? I can't walk. I have never walked. My legs don't work. But you have to believe. Believe. And so this is the message that we hear today. Walk. Walk in the Spirit. Spiritually walk in the name of Jesus Christ. You have been crippled with this spiritual disability. This is, this is the nature that we're born with. This is our inheritance in Adam. Dead in sin, stuck in sinful patterns. It's impossible for us to just will ourselves to get out of it. But Christ calls you to believe. Believe the power that he has and walk. And the normal excuse that we give is, well, we can't. I'm a sinful person. I can't change this. I can't will myself to stop having these desires for having these tendencies, whatever it is. I can't, I can't do that. It's impossible. Yeah, it is. But believe but believe in the power of Christ. This healing is a promise of spiritual restoration. And it's a promise of final spiritual and also physical renewal. But it begins today. It begins today by believing that Christ has the power to do this. To transform you. And so here Peter has opened their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. Many of them believe. You see later on in, in, in Acts here, many of them believe. So in the, in the next chapter, the church numbers about 5,000 after this. They understand, they understand what they've done, that they have crucified the holy and the righteous one. They've killed the author of life. And so Peter says, you can repent from that. You must repent from that. And that's our second point, the command to turn to Christ. Verse 17, Peter says to the crowd, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come to the, from the Lord. Israel, the people that Peter's addressing, Israel was the people, they were the people of God. Israel was God's church. But we see that the church had not been acting like the church. They have denied the work of God. They've denied God's anointed. They've invented their own method and way of salvation to replace the way of salvation that God had prescribed. And when the church is not living according to God's word, not living in faith, 
the church fails to do what is essential as the church. And that is to be the light of God in the world, to be a witness, to be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And this is something that Peter reminds them of in verse 25. He says, you are the sons of the prophets, so heirs. You are sons of the prophets. You are heirs of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And he said to Abraham, in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is, this is the function of God's holy community of people. This is the function of people who bear God's name, to magnify the name of God and to be an outward blessing. And so the question is, what happens if there is no repentance in the church? What if instead of, instead of being serious about our sins, instead of understanding how our sinfulness offends God and desiring to turn away and desiring to, to, to walk in this new life. As our catechism words it, grieving with heartfelt sorrow that we've offended God by our sins and then experiencing heartfelt joy in God through Christ, experiencing love and delight to live faithfully. What if instead of repenting, the way we're called to repent, we, we just settle in and we're comfortable as we are because, you know, we're God's covenant people. God has established this relationship with us and we're in a very privileged position with respect to God. Yes, it's true. But guess what? God demands repentance from his covenant people all the time. If we aren't constantly, daily repenting, then we fail what God calls us to be, and that's proof of the power of Christ. We're to be visible proof of the power of Jesus Christ. We fail to be witnesses of his power and work. This, this act of witnessing isn't a New Testament, you know, book of Acts kind of thing. This has always been Israel's function. To bear the name of God in the earth. To display his goodness for all to see. I would encourage you, just look at a Deuteronomy 4 at some point. And this is where Moses is telling you what... Moses is telling Israel what would happen when they, when they are faithful to the covenant that God has made with them, when they keep his laws. Then the nations around them will see how wonderful this nation is. There's no other nation that lives like this with, with justice and with righteousness and, and, and a, a nation that lives with their God so near to them as, as, to, as to listen whenever they call on his name. It's supposed to be a magnificent display of the nature of God and his relationship with his people. People outside of the covenant community are supposed to take note and say, this is amazing. Israel has failed in this. But now they are in the process of being restored to this task. 
They're being recommissioned for this work. Why did Jesus begin this work in Jerusalem? In Acts 1, verse 8, this is what he tells them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Wider and wider circles. Why does he start in Jerusalem? It wasn't at random. And it wasn't just because, well, Jerusalem is the capital city, you know, an important city. It's because this is Israel's function. Now the function of the new Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, It's the restoration of the people of God. This is why Peter says in verse 26, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. But then they in turn become a blessing outward. This is why when Jesus sent out his disciples during his earthly ministry, he says, don't go into Gentile territory yet, but Stay in the villages and the cities of Israel. This is why Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. This isn't because he likes Jews more. Not, not because they're, they're favored in some way. But it's because Israel was to be the custodian of God's revelation. They were to be the caretakers of the word of God, the knowledge of God. They were to be a priestly people. And their function as priests was to know God, to draw near to God in order to show God to the nations. And this is all within God's promise to Abraham, the father of many nations. Israel, the church, has to be restored to health before being recommissioned with this task before receiving the addition of nations into it. And if the church is going to carry out this task, we must be repenting every day. Show the fruit of the Spirit. If we accept, if we accept the impossibility of of not changing, not repenting, not amending our ways, that we deny the power of Christ. If we give that excuse, well, it's impossible. You know, I can't walk. I'm, I'm crippled in sin. We strip the gospel of its power. People of God, you have seen the power of Christ. Believe wholeheartedly what has been promised to you today and repent again. Repent today and repent tomorrow. Turn to God and you can expect a life of refreshment. And that's briefly our third point. A time of refreshment. Peter says in verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back, 
that your sins may be blotted out, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean, to be refreshed? Well, if, if something is made fresh, refreshed, it's made new. It's rejuvenated. It's, it has this new life injected into it. The, the oldness is, is scrubbed away and, and newness, newness is experienced. We're freshened up. And this idea has tones of, of Sabbath in it, rest. This is what the Sabbath is for. It's a beautiful gift from God where we experience, you know, physical and especially spiritual renewal. We're freshened up. After, after a week of grinding it out, we're tired, we're weary, we're heavy laden. And we're done, we're, 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 we're empty. And God gives a Sabbath rest. God gives refreshment. God gives renewal. And one of the main focuses of this rest, one of the most wonderful things about this, about having the gift of rest, it means that you know that you're not a slave anymore. The contrast between a life of, of sin and a life of holiness with God is the same as the contrast between living in slavery and living in true freedom and peace with God. And this is the life that God gives in Jesus Christ. He empowers us with his spirit to live this way. And this is similar to how the catechism teaches about observance of the Sabbath. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath day? We read in the catechism what's required. That all the days of my life I rest from my evil works. I let the Lord work in me through his Holy Spirit and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. And this, is, this is repentance. So when we're instructed to keep the Sabbath, we're instructed to, to be repenting, turning away from patterns of sinfulness, turning to God by, and, and living by his power. And God leads us in a life of refreshment, right? It's, it's not a life that's full of impossible, stifling rules that we would rather not follow. You know, it's different. It's, it's living the, the good life. It's, it's maybe helpful to think of, of the Sabbath life as sort of like the life of a recovering heroin addict, you know, while, while this person is an addict, he's completely powerless, completely powerless to stop it. He needs this drug. His entire life is enslavement to it. And, and he's even deceived at times into thinking that 
that this drug is actually helping. It's a positive for him. He has to get right, you know. A heroin addict, if, if, they, if they haven't had it for a while, then, then it's like just extreme sickness. And you need it in order to feel better. It's like healing for you. You need it every single day, but it's enslavement. It's enslavement. And this is how it is with our sin. We're enslaved to it until we're not. And when we're released from its grip, when we're freed from its ownership and dominion over us, the life that we give, and then these beautiful laws that God gives us, it's a life of cleanness and refreshment. We can actually live well now that this drug of of sin doesn't have its hooks in us anymore. And this is the promised reality for the New Testament church. This is the promised reality for all of you. Jesus Christ has come to free you from all of that so that we can have forgiveness of sins, so that we can begin today to live the blessed life. The era of refreshment is today. The joy of being able to walk after being crippled for 40 years. I think if we really understood what God is promising here, we might, we might jump around too. And our lives now in the church, our lives are meant to be contrasted very strongly with the life without God. It doesn't mean that we're exempt from pain. It doesn't mean that, that we'll never experience disease, that we'll never experience sadness, the hardships of this life, that perfection and that glory is still coming, but we're living in the beginning of it. We live in an era where we have a beginning of this, especially spiritually. We can live through these things and and in these things with peace, with, with the joy that God gives And this is a powerful witness. When someone sees the peace that you have in the middle of the worst that this life has to offer, this is a testimony. And living in this new era, the beginning of eternity, it doesn't mean that we stop messing up. It doesn't mean that we'll never stumble. It doesn't mean that we'll never fall. That time is coming, the time of perfection. This man who was healed in our text, he was completely disabled before, but now he can walk, he can run, he can jump. But it's pretty safe to assume that from time to time he probably stubbed his toe, he probably tripped and fell. He didn't walk perfectly yet. He didn't walk perfectly. But he walked. Walk in the Spirit, people of God. Believe in the power of Christ, that he can turn your hearts, that he can renew your wills and make you walk in his ways. You're going to fall. You're going to stub your toe. You won't walk perfectly yet in this life, but you will walk in step with the Spirit. Amen.